We're going to keep on in Luke chapter 7 today, if you have your Bible. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as well. Setting us up for today, we finished last week talking about John the Baptist, this mighty prophet of God sent to prepare the way for the Messiah of the world. Even he, even John the Baptist, had times of doubts that could shake him. And yet, Jesus responds to him and lets him know that he has indeed placed his faith right where it should be in him, in Jesus. As we continue in Luke 7 today, after John's messengers leave to go back to him, Jesus turns to the crowds and begins to talk about John to them, which, a little sad note on this is, John probably never got to hear these words of Jesus. His messengers had left. John dies pretty soon after this story. And so uh, until John and Jesus get back together in heaven, he probably doesn't realize the amazing things that Jesus had to say about him. But we're going to read this together. John, going through his doubts, his messengers go back to communicate with him. And then maybe Jesus hears the people in the crowd murmuring, and maybe they're questioning John the Baptist. And so Jesus says this, Luke 7, verse 24, if you're following along. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaking, shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is <coughs> he of whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What an amazing thing to have Jesus say about you. That among all of the men born to women, that you are the greatest. Jesus begins to tell the crowd this. And I love the opening line that Jesus says to the crowd. He says, what did you go out to see when you heard about John the Baptist? Did you go out to the desert to see a weak reed that would blow to and from? Meaning, did you go out to see a man who flips and flops, a weak man who goes along with whatever society has to say? <clears throat> did you see a man in nice, soft, beautiful clothing, dressing like the regal leaders who's in love with the luxuries of life? No, you went to see a prophet of God, a, a man's man, somebody who wears camel fur as a, as a coat. A man who has conviction. A man who lives this ascetic lifestyle. He's weird. His clothes are weird. His eating habits are weird. This dude's just, he's, he's odd. And he says, did you go out to see some regular guy? He says, no, you saw someone very different. But more than that, you saw a messenger who had been sent by God to be the Messiah. <laughs> he was a prophet that fulfills prophecy in the very way that he exists. 
I don't want to miss that. John is a prophet who fulfills prophecy just by living because he was sent by God and he was proclaimed in the Old Testament that he would be sent. And then Jesus finishes this amazing explanation of John the Baptist saying, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. He's talking to a Jewish audience and what he's saying is, you know John the Baptist? Greater than Moses. And they're like, what? Greater than Elijah. Greater than Elisha. Greater than King David. Greater than King Solomon. And and they're like, what are you talking about? He was some weird dude out in the desert. But Jesus says, no, he was the greatest of all men And we can probably think of people that we would measure as great. Maybe when you think about that in your life, you think about your favorite athlete, your favorite singer, your favorite actor, maybe even a spiritual leader, and you think of how great they were. But Jesus claims that John the Baptist is the greatest of all men born to women. What did he do? to deserve such an accolade. I think it's this. John's whole life, his whole purpose, was to point to Jesus. From the beginning of his life, he was consecrated to the Lord, and then he lives his entire life, and his entire purpose is to go out and to be a voice in the wilderness, (coughs) proclaiming the truth, John the Baptist, listen, this is amazing. He is, even though John the Baptist is spoken of in the New Testament, he's actually the last Old Testament prophet. And every prophet before him got to speak this message that the Messiah is coming. But John the Baptist got to be the one whose entire life revolved around the message of the Messiah is here. He is here amongst us. His whole world was pointing to Jesus. Do you want to do something with your life that Jesus would say is valuable and powerful and great? Then be like John the Baptist. Live your life to point to Jesus. Live your life being someone who's crying out in the wilderness all the time and maybe people are like, that's a little weird. It's okay because my, my whole purpose, my whole purpose in this life is to point to Jesus. And yet, here's the interesting, yet Jesus says, even though he's the greatest, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Well, we're in the kingdom of God, right? We're on the other side of the cross. This is the kingdom of God into eternity. So what does that mean? How is that possible? I don't think it's saying we're greater than John the Baptist in terms of what we've done in the world. I don't think it's saying, man, I'm going to have so many more crowns in heaven than John the Baptist. That would be pretty arrogant, wouldn't it? I think you can look at this in terms, we are greater in terms of our blessedness. We have two major things that we can say we have above John the Baptist. We have a position in Christ. 
we can see the entire story of the Messiah. Right? John starts to doubt because he's in prison. He remembers Isaiah where it says captives will be freed. We can look at the whole story of the Messiah coming, dying, rising again. He didn't get to see that whole story. So we actually get to see that the kingdom of God has played out and it has come to fruition. So we are positionally in a place where we can see the whole story. We get to be a part of the new covenant that Jesus completed on the cross, that the empty tomb leads to. We get to be on the other side of Jesus' words, it is finished. The simple fact that we reside on this side of the cross means that we have a blessing that John the Baptist didn't yet have, but he still pointed towards. We also have this unbelievable privilege. We have a position and we have a privilege. I was talking to this, I think, with my small group this past week. We were, we were talking about how weird it is when Jesus says to his disciples, it's better if I leave because then I'll send someone else. And you can imagine, they're like, that does not sound right. We like you. We want you right here with us. But Jesus says, it's better if I leave because I will send my spirit to abide in you. See, his, John the Baptist is there. He's with Jesus. The disciples are with Jesus. But after he goes and sends his spirit, we have the privilege of having Jesus reside in us. And that's such an odd thing to think that that's better than actually like physically standing next to him. But it is. The Spirit of the Lord is in us and can guide us. And that's a privilege that puts us in this position of a greater blessing than even John the Baptist had. Jesus told his apostles, it'll be better if I leave. And I can't imagine for a moment that they understood how that could possibly be. And yet it's the truth. Because greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. Amen? Let's go to verse 29 through 35. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Let's break this down. There's a lot there. Verse 29 talks about the baptism of John. It's a baptism of preparation, of repentance from the old life. But the same as the baptism, it's, it's different than the baptism as a Christian who is born again into eternal life believing and receiving. And these people, the tax collectors, they heard John's words and they declared 
that God was just. They knew that he was right and that the change needed to happen, but that he was just preparing the way for the one who was greater than him. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes, the theologians, they reject this message because, listen, because they don't think they need to be forgiven. They don't think they're that bad. They reject the idea that they need to repent from their sins and to talk to somebody else and to admit those things because they think that they are righteous and holy in and of themselves. They reject John the Baptist, they reject his message, and they reject this entire idea. And so Jesus makes this great, this is a great line, if you dig into it a little bit. He says, what shall I compare this generation? He says, they're like children in the marketplace. The children would play games in the marketplace. When everyone else wasn't there, they would go out and they would play games. And they would play games like wedding. They would play games like funeral. And they would go out and, and, and play these games and have fun. And it reminded me so much. My kids used to do this when they were younger, when my daughters were younger. When I was a pastor in North Dakota, we had a Saturday night service. And after the service, the kids would run up and one of them would grab the microphone and one of them would pretend to be the pastor. And they, and they would say like, you need Jesus, blah, blah, blah. It was like dead on impersonation, absolutely. <laughs> and then the other ones would like grab instruments and start playing and they they would play church, and this is what the kids were doing in those days. But kids are also, I don't want to offend you guys. Kids are also a little whiny, aren't they? Kids have, kids have a propensity to complain and to whine and murmur. And so Jesus is talking about them. These kids are playing, and they're like, we played the flute and you didn't dance. Well, we played a dirge and you didn't cry. Well, right, they're complaining. And he's comparing all of Israel to these kids, basically saying, your generation is like spoiled brats. Again, I love you guys. All my heart. These generations like spoiled brats who are just complaining about everything. He says, John came and didn't eat any bread or drink any wine, and you say, he must be demonized. That's almost funny. They look at a man who's calling the people of Israel to radical repentance and living an ascetic lifestyle, and they're like, hmm, looks like a demon. What? So they complain about him, and then Jesus comes, and he eats, and he drinks, and he has wine, and he eats meals with sinners, and they're like, hmm, looks like a demon. You guys aren't happy about anything. Nothing. Again, children, you guys aren't happy about anything. Right? He just says, like, nothing satisfies you. You're, you're never happy. You have a complaint about everything. You didn't like John the Baptist. You don't, you don't like me. But then he has this last line. He says, but wisdom is justified by her children. Which the modern one would kind of be, the proof is in the pudding. Right? The wisdom of those who follow John the Baptist, the wisdom of those who follow Jesus, you're going to see what comes from that. And her children, wisdom's children, will be known. Both of the ministries of John and Jesus show fruit. Lives are changed. Sinners repent. People are baptized. The sick are healed. 
the dead rise, on and on. Their ministries show the fruit of God. And so he says, wisdom's children shall be known. Then the whole story takes this seemingly sudden change in a new direction. Jesus receives an invitation to go have a meal. And it's a weird invitation. Let's read verses 36 through 50. This is a long chunk. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, notice he says to himself, he's thinking this. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for your feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Why would a Pharisee invite Jesus over to his house for dinner? Like, they seem like enemies, right? So we don't know, but maybe it's sheer hospitality. Maybe he's trying to be a good Jewish Pharisee. Or maybe he wanted to be able to say that he had a celebrity in his home. He wanted to say, I had that teacher that everyone's talking about. I had him in my home for a meal. At the time, the Pharisees, these men have been at odds with Jesus over everything. And so when one of them invites him to come eat with him at his own home, and Jesus actually accepts the invitation, it seems kind of wild. It shows me something pretty interesting. Jesus even loves Pharisees. I have no problem with Jesus loving the sinners. I love that. But sometimes I struggle more with Jesus loves the religious elitists who think they're better than everybody. 
He even loves the Pharisee. He goes and he has a meal with him, which in that society meant you were accepting of a person to have a meal with them. He cares about them. And when he speaks harshly to the Pharisees, he does so out of an abundance of love and a desire for them to repent and to come back to him. To come back to God and not be caught up in their own false righteousness. Yet just another amazing thing about Jesus. He doesn't only go after the sinners. He even goes after the Pharisees. He accepts an invitation to this man's home. And then a woman comes. And we can probably guess that she was a woman of the night, so to speak. We don't know for sure. But that's what it would seem to lead to. How does she get into this meal? Did you think about that? They're sitting at this Pharisee's house. How does a woman of the night suddenly show up? Well, in those days, most houses that were nice homes actually had a courtyard outside of the home. And if they were having a nice meal and the weather was nice, they would go outside and they would eat the meal there. And so she probably like literally just walks off of the street into the Pharisee's courtyard because she's heard that Jesus is there. And they ate not at a table like we would eat. They ate at a table called a triclinium, which was a low table. You don't sit in a chair. You recline. And so that's one of the weird parts of the story. You're like, why are Jesus' feet behind him while he's sitting at the table, right? Because she's standing behind him. Well, he's reclining. And they would normally sit with their left elbow kind of propping them up on this low table. They would eat. They didn't have forks and knives and spoons. They would eat with their right hand. And then they would just kind of recline. And so he's there reclining. And she comes up behind him. And she begins to weep. She begins to wash his feet. Foot washing in those days. I know people today, they're like, I could never wash somebody's feet. That's so gross. Foot washing in those days was a much, much dirtier situation. They don't have hey dudes. Right? They don't have sneakers. They have sandals, and they're walking around in the dirt, and maybe sometimes you step in a cow pie or a camel pie. and It's just part of life because you live on dirt roads. And So when you come to somebody's house, almost always one of the first things they would do is they'd give you water for your feet so that you don't track all that into their home or the smells and all those things. And, and so she gets down, and she begins to wash his feet, but not with water, with her own tears. And you can imagine that you wash somebody's feet with your tears, it's not really going to get rid of all of the dirt and muck. It's just going to swirl it around. And then she takes her hair, which the Bible says is, is the sign of a woman's glory. She takes her hair down, which would have been scandalous all by itself. Just the fact that this woman takes her hair down out of a bun in front of men who are not her husband, scandal, immediate. She takes her hair out and she begins to wipe that dirty, teary mud from Jesus' feet. And then she kisses his feet. Still dirty, still muddy. She begins to kiss his feet. Now the Pharisee thinks to himself, if you were a prophet, you would know what kind of woman, which is an interesting, I'm not going to get into this, but how does he know who she is? Is it just because he's one of the religious leaders? 
Or does he know in a professional sense exactly who she is? He says, you, you would know who this is. Jesus looks at him and he says, I have something to say to you. And then he speaks this parable. He talks about a banker who has two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii, which is basically 500 days of a, of a working man's wage, like a couple years worth of work. And the other owes 50 days, much less, but still a big debt. He forgives them both, talks about it with the guy. The guy says, well, obviously the one who you forgave a bigger debt, he says, you judge rightly, which is a very kind thing for Jesus to say at this point, rather than duh. You judge rightly. And then he says something interesting. He knows that Simon, the Pharisee, has been obsessed with this woman since she walked in. And yet he says, do you see this woman? He's like, oh, oh yeah, I, I noticed her. Like anybody's not going to notice the woman who's kissing Jesus' feet and washing his feet with her hair. He says, do you see this woman? Interesting there, side note, the word woman, une, same word that he uses for Mary when he's talking about Mary on the cross. He says, take the woman, John, take care of this woman. He uses the same word to describe this sinful woman that he uses to describe Mother Mary. Another just small, just beautiful thing that Jesus does. And he says to the guy, to Simon, he says, you didn't give me water for my feet. You gave me no kiss, which I know sounds weird to us, but over there, you know, the whole like, mwah, mwah, glad you're in my home kind of kiss. You didn't anoint my head. In those days, people stank. Let's be real. They don't have deodorant. They're walking around in the dirt, in the desert. And so when you go to somebody's home, they would anoint your head with oil so that the whole room didn't just smell like body odor. He says, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't give me a kiss, you didn't anoint my head, and yet all of these things would have been massive, rude omissions for a host. This is what you do. If you invite somebody into your home and their culture, you wash your, their feet, you kiss them on the cheeks, you greet them, you anoint them, and he does none of these things. <coughs> and yet Jesus says, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. She has anointed my feet with ointment. And this bottle of ointment that she brings, the alabaster jar, was by far the most expensive thing that this woman owns. It was incredibly valued. She comes and she breaks it open and just begins to anoint Jesus, giving everything that she has. And so Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. It's interesting because the way that the story sounds, when you just read it on face value, is that she was a massive sinner and he wasn't. And so she loves more. But I don't think that it's actually saying that Simon is less of a sinner. I think it's talking about Simon thought he was less of a sinner. And so he doesn't think that he needs to offer as much love, as much grace, as much mercy. He fell into a lie. Listen. He fell into the lie 
that is a dangerous pit for all of us where we start to compare our sins to other people. Have you ever done this? If you say you haven't, you're lying. Sin, boom, nailed it, okay. We all do this, even subconsciously, we say, well, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as Tim Senecal. Notice we, that's a bad, I love Tim Cynical, but notice normally when we do that, we go to the worst person we know, right, which is not Tim Cynical. Normally we say, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I'm not Tom Brady. Sorry, terrible joke. Okay. He ruined football, okay, sorry. We fall into this pit where we begin to compare ourselves to other people. And here's the thing, listen, if you don't think your sins are that bad, then you don't think Jesus is that good. If you think Jesus died for your sins and your sins are not really that bad, then what did he die for? What did he save you from? Do you really think that Jesus looked at you and says, well, you know, you only need a little bit of grace and mercy, but these other people need a lot. No, if we understand how broken our sin is, then we understand how amazing the love of Christ is. Lord, far be it from us to believe these lies about ourselves or especially about you. Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the guests, like earlier in the Gospels series, remember last time Jesus said this to somebody in someone's house, People freaked out, and they're like, who do you think you are that you can just forgive sins? Well, Jesus does it again. He says, your sins are forgiven, and the people are like, who who thinks they can do that? He says, your faith, your faith, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want you to see what Jesus doesn't say there. It's really important to see what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, your change in actions that are going to take place from this point forward has saved you. Go in peace. He doesn't say, your mental understanding of your sinfulness has saved you. Go in peace. He says, your faith in me has saved you. Luke later tells us, much later in his book, that there is much rejoicing in heaven over when one sinner that repents comes to faith. And it makes me think about this story. When this woman who was known as a notorious sinner comes to faith in Jesus, it doesn't tell us that anybody other than Jesus is celebrating with her. The Pharisees questioning the whole thing immediately. Everyone else in the story is questioning, critiquing, not sure that they buy what's going on. And so Jesus is having this amazing moment where a woman has just been saved from her sin, her brokenness. She is saved unto eternal life with Jesus, and everyone's just kind of like, mm, I don't know. And that's sad. And I still see this happening in the world. 
This week, there was a story, I don't know if you saw it, it was a viral story that went around. There's a, a tattoo artist named Kat Von D, who I've known who she was for 20 years. She's an amazing tattoo artist. But she was very much an open proponent of the occult, of Satanists, of all sorts of dark things. And just this last week, or a couple weeks ago, she posted a video to social media of her being baptized into faith in Jesus. And if you see this woman, a lot of Christians would look at this woman and be like, ah, I don't know, she doesn't look like what I think a Christian should look like. And that's exactly what people started talking about. Ah, it doesn't look like what I, all of her friends look like they're straight out of tattoo shops and parlors and the occult, and they're all standing around and they're singing worship songs. And so many people just started saying, I don't buy it. It doesn't look right to me. She went on Allie Beth Stuckey's podcast and said the hardest thing for her through all this is that her husband has not yet come to faith. And as he sees the reaction of other Christians, he's not sure that he wants to come to faith. Now, I don't know what's in her heart. I'm not telling you that I know for sure that Kat Von D is on fire for Jesus. She says she is. But going back to the judge thing, that's not my job. But my job is to rejoice with somebody when they declare faith in Jesus Christ. When somebody literally throws away, burns her occult books to pursue Jesus, the church should be celebrating that, not sitting back being like, we'll see. I'm not saying we shouldn't have discernment. But let us praise God when one sinner comes to faith. Let us rejoice when the one sheep is brought back into the fold. I know that the calling on our lives as followers of Jesus is to share the love and grace and mercy of Jesus with other people. Especially people that do not know him as Savior yet. And then to help them become fully formed disciples of Jesus. And so when one sinner turns from brokenness and declares that this world is broken and that Jesus is the answer, then I want to rejoice with them. This sinful woman in our story who came to Jesus understood, listen, she understood better than the Pharisee her need to be forgiven. Do we understand this? Do you understand the need that you have to be forgiven? Or are we living in comparison to other people? I'm not that bad. I've never killed anybody. I wasn't in the occult like her. I work hard. I love my family. I provide on and on and on. We, we make these examples as if we do not need the love and mercy of Jesus just as much. We all need forgiveness. Abundant, amazing forgiveness for a multitude of sins. We all need it. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need to be brought back into relationship with him. And we need to be saved from our sin. And we need to be saved by faith.
in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Our greatest life, if you've tuned me out, come back. Our greatest need in this life is not food or shelter or money or cars or homes or blah, 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 blah. Our greatest need in this life is the grace and mercy of God. And his greatest gift is to grant it to us because we follow him. No matter whether you are a 500 days wage sinner or a 50 days wage sinner or you think you're, I don't have any sin at all, sinner. We need it. What blows me away, check this out. What blows me away at the end of Luke chapter 7 is that we have talked about a great man, John the Baptist, and a shady lady. A great man and a shady lady. And yet at the end of the chapter, there's no difference between them. He offers both of them and all of us his love, his mercy, his grace, his joy, his righteousness. He offers all of it. Whether you are the greatest man who's ever been born to a woman or a prostitute walking around in Israel, he offers this. And if you're somewhere in the middle, like most of us probably are, he offers the same gift, and it's a free gift. We just believe in his promises in our heart. We confess with our hearts that he is Lord. We confess with our mouths and we'll be saved. Whether you're like the person who's been dedicated to the Lord from the day you were born or like somebody who just walks in to a meal and falls at the feet of Jesus, you are welcome at the feet of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have not yet made this decision to come to Christ, to own your sin, to fall at his feet, whether literally or proverbially, if you have not made that decision yet, I pray, I I beg you not to leave here before you do that. Grab me, grab one of the elders, grab somebody who drug you to church this morning. If you feel like God is speaking to your heart, then make that choice today. It is the greatest thing you can possibly do. I have never met a Christian who says, I really regret giving my life to Jesus. Not one, ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story of a great man and a shady lady and all of us somewhere in between or maybe worse. God, your grace and your mercy are so good. They're so abundant. They're so amazing. We, we can't even fathom it, Lord. You're so good. And so I pray if there's anybody battling right now, saying, no, no, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, God, would you just do a miracle in them in this moment, a miracle that is equal to a woman throwing down everything that she has and just realizing how much she needs you. God, let us not leave this place without doing the business we need to do with you. 
let none of us leave here the same, but more wholly devoted to you and to your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name.